What's up, Fathom fam? Welcome to our weekly Sunday Sermon Podcast. As Pastor Kyle and Taryn are taking a time of sabbatical away from the campus and preaching to spend some intentional time with family and the Lord and get refreshed, they've been really intentional about setting us as a church body up for a time to continue growing even in their physical absence. We look forward to their return on August 8th, but get excited to be hearing until then from some of our other favorite pastors and leaders in our summer series called One. This is going to be a really special summer series where we'll keep on growing our faith and experiencing freedom in Christ as we receive from many voices the one cohesive message that God has given the church. Don't forget that you can follow us to stay up to date on everything going on at Fathom on Instagram or YouTube, our Facebook page, and our Fathom Family Facebook group, and of course, on the Church Center app. We hope to see you there, but for now, we're going to jump right into the message. Uh, I'm I'm so honored to be here. Honestly, I am. I I had a chance to come here and speak a few years ago. Pastor Kyle invited me to come here, and they were actually out of town that day. And I don't even know if I told you this, but I introduced kind of myself by saying that I've known uh, these amazing people for a really long time. In fact, I remember being in youth ministry, like as a leader, as a youth pastor, while they were still attending the camps that we were helping to put on. And there was this audible gasp in the room, like they could not believe um, that you were older than me or that you were younger than me, rather. And then it was confirmed this morning that somebody actually said, oh, yeah, I would think that Kyle is older than you by, what was it, 10 or 15 years, I think it was said, or something like that. Um, no, but I really am honored. I, I, love, I love Kyle and Taryn, and I have uh, really enjoyed watching from afar what has been happening at Fathom. When I was here a few years ago, that foyer looked totally different. There was no building back here. And so just to see what God is doing, the faithfulness of God in this house is just incredible. And I'm, I'm truly, truly honored just to be a part of it today and to share God's word with you. Just as a, as a short introduction to, uh, to myself, uh, I'm the administrative pastor at uh, Destiny Community Church in Newberry, which is just outside of Gainesville, Florida. So go Gators. Um, I knew I'd get at least one. So, uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, and I've been there, I've been on staff there for uh, about 14 years uh, in a few different capacities. I was in youth ministry for a long, long time. And, and now, again, I serve as the administrative pastor. So I wear a lot of different hats, which is what happens in ministry. Um, got an amazing family. My wife, Deanna, is with me. We've been married for 14 years. Um, um, and uh, we've got two amazing kids. Riley, our daughter, is 10. Um, and our son Lincoln is four, and we have a brand new addition to the family uh, that's a a lot furrier than all of us. So we literally, like Thursday, just got a brand new dog that we introduced to the Petrush house, and so uh, we have a puppy. Y'all pray for us. Please pray for us. My family asked me for years to get a dog, and I said no, 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 until my little four-year-old son melted my heart when he stopped saying, can we please have a dog, and he would see any dog on a commercial in print in real, per, in real life, and he would point at that dog and say, Daddy, can we have that dog at our house? And so it just kind of melted everything away. So now we have a dog, and I'm, you know, the stereotypical gruff dad who didn't want the dog, and I'm the one laying on the floor with the thing. And so uh, life changes pretty quick when that happens, doesn't it? And so uh, once again, thank you so much for, um, for having me today. Uh, I'm excited to share God's word with you, and so we're just going to go ahead and dive right in, if that's okay. Uh, even if it's not, it's what we're going to do. So... Um, 
The title of the message today is called Miracle Mile. Miracle Mile. And we're going to be picking up in Matthew chapter 5. The words of Jesus starting in verse 38. And the context to surround this as you're making your way there on your phone or in your uh, Bible is, is just that this is part of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Quite possibly Jesus' famous, most famous sermon. Uh, so many things are said in this that could be preached on forever and ever and ever. And so it's, uh, it's just going to be our opportunity today to take just a little four-verse section. And honestly, really going to be focusing in on one of those verses today. Uh, and so it says this in Matthew 5, 38, and I'm in the NIV. These are the words of Jesus. He said, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Somebody say two miles. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. God, I believe that it is living and it is active. God, I believe that it is rightly dividing truth this morning. And so, God, I pray that your word today would illuminate those places in our hearts where we need the truth so desperately. God, I pray that it would challenge us, that it would encourage us, God, and that you would be glorified and honored. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Another thing you need to know about me is that I love being around and involved in awkward moments and awkward situations. Uh, maybe some of you, I heard some chuckling, some nervous chuckling, but uh, some chuckling nonetheless. Um, I, I enjoy it as long as I am not the reason for the awkwardness. If I say something that introduces an awkward moment in an environment, in a room, in a conversation, then I want to escape as quickly as I can. I want to disappear, blend into the background. But if it's not, if I'm just in a group of people and something awkward happens, I love seeing how it all unfolds. I just love those moments. Blame it on my love of The Office, the TV show. I don't know, but I love those moments. Michael Scott moments. I do. When it's just so awkward and painful, I find some sick humor in those moments. And so I love being a part of that and watching that happen. And I've had an opportunity many times in my life to be a part of those moments. And one thing that I think lends itself for me to have that opportunity somewhat consistently is what my wife and I uh, affectionately refer to as my ethnic ambiguity. Let me explain, because some of you are you're like, is he going to talk about it? So I, I get a question a lot. What are you? Where are you from? There is kind of this big question mark of my ethnicity. And I love it because I tend to like to not answer the question and then let people just like, you know, make it really awkward for themselves and talk and backpedal and all of those things. And so I'll tell you some of the ethnicities that have been guessed about me. Uh, when I grow my facial hair out longer, it doesn't really get like cool and tight and, and hip looking like a beard. It just kind of grows straight down really dark. And so I get the question a lot, are you of Middle Eastern descent? Um, and so some people grow, can grow that beard out and it looks really cool and really trendy. And some people even grow it. Uh, our lead, my lead pastor, who's going to be here, uh, I think in July, uh, has this nice big beard and there's a lot of gray hair in it. And so like, that just looks like wisdom on him to me. I grow that out. I get randomly searched at the airport. Like that's what happens to me. Right. And so it's like, I get that guess a lot. I've had plenty of people ask me, um, if I'm biracial. Uh, and in fact, I was speaking at a church for another friend of mine a couple of months ago in Amelia Island. And after the service was over, somebody came up and said, hey, not really close up, but from a distance, told you you look like Keegan-Michael Key. 
And I said, uh, that is a fantastic compliment, but no, you're pretty much the first, so thank you. Uh, and then I found out that's not true. My wife says a few people say that about me. And so uh, if you want me to be that funny, I am going to disappoint you terribly. But uh, So I get that guess. Most of my life, though, I have gotten the guess from other people that I am of Hispanic descent. And this played out perfectly for an awkward moment at Universal Studios about a year and a half ago, pre-pandemic. You guys remember pre-pandemic? Remember when you could do stuff and not have to think about it twice and all that? I know the masks are going away. I get that. And you can go around the theme parks without them. But this is before anybody had any like masks in their pockets at the time, right? And so we were standing there in line. My wife and my daughter went off to go to the restroom. And so I'm holding our place in this long line for one of the attractions. And this woman walks right up to me. There is no introduction. I've never seen this woman before in my life. I don't know her from anyone. And she just starts speaking full Spanish 100 miles an hour to me. And I can tell whatever she's saying, the inflection and the tone that it is important and that she needs information from me. But I have no idea what she's saying. I don't speak any Spanish. I took Spanish one and two in high school about 500 years ago. And I remember, hello, goodbye, and where's the bathroom? And maybe some other things that aren't really going to apply to any situation at Universal Studios, right? And so she just is like firing Spanish at me, 100 miles an hour. And she must see my eyes get wider because I don't know what to do. She's not taking a breath, not allowing me the opportunity to say, I don't speak Spanish or no habla espanol. See, I got that one. Uh, but she would not like take a breath for me to have that you know, kind of input into the moment. And so she just kept on going, kept on going, kept on going until she was done with what she wanted to say or what questions she asked or speaking terribly about me. I honestly don't know what she was saying. So it could have been any combination of those things. And she stopped and she just looked at me and she must have seen my eyes this wide. And then I finally got out. I'm sorry, I don't speak Spanish. And she looked so disappointed. Like she looked so like, like this was not at all what I was expecting. And it finally hit me. I'm like, this woman thinks that I'm a Hispanic man who does not know a lick of Spanish. And she's disappointed in me for not speaking Spanish. That's what's happening in this. She was so disappointed. And so just to kind of ease the tension in the room and tell you what I am, I'm not any of those nationalities, ethnicities. I love all of the brothers and sisters in those ethnicities. I'm just not. And so if I had to, to kind of pin it on something, I take after, uh, you know, features wise, my dad's side of the family, which is mostly Croatian and Italian. I don't know how this happens, but this happened. OK, so that's that's what it is. But this woman at the theme park had no idea that that is my background. And so when she started speaking Spanish, she was expecting me to reply and to help her with whatever she was struggling with. And she was so disappointed because it was not at all what she expected. And a couple thousand years ago, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he shows up in a political climate that is in upheaval, a climate where the Jewish people had been oppressed for the last century by the Roman occupation of their land, and what was promised to them was a savior. And so most Jews were looking forward to and anticipating Jesus coming on the scene as some sort of a warrior, some sort of a sword-carrying king that was going to establish a physical kingdom and put the Jews back in charge of the world and make all things right politically. And from that aspect, and when Jesus shows up, he doesn't show up as a king on a throne. He shows up as a rabbi teaching a new way to live in a brand new kingdom that he was establishing and that he was setting up. And it was not at all what most people had hoped for and expected, but it was way, way better than any of those things that they could have hoped for or expected. 
The thing that was disappointing to most of them is that the things that Jesus had a tendency to teach, they were always very challenging and they were subversive and they were counterintuitive and very countercultural all at the same time. And perhaps none of Jesus's sermons illustrate that better than the Sermon on the Mount where we found our text this morning. During the Sermon on the Mount, there's this cadence, this kind of rhythm that Jesus has as he's delivering these deep spiritual truths, this kingdom living that he is introducing to these people for the first time in a primarily Jewish audience that he's speaking to. And he would say the same thing kind of over and over to illustrate his points. And he would say, you heard it said, and then he would describe a law, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, and in those four words, but I tell you, he was really not taking anything away from the integrity of the law, but what he was doing was introducing us to a new way of living that was fulfilling the law. It was a call to a higher calling, a higher standard. He was not doing away with the law that was on the books and all of those things that had but he was really getting down deeper to the heart of the law, that it is about the placement and the posture of our hearts, because that's what God is after. He's after our heart. He's after the posture of our heart. And so in Matthew 5, 31, or 38 through 41, he challenges this prevailing thought of how we should treat people who treat us poorly, people who hurt us, whether it's accidental or whether it is intentional. It does not matter. He does not quantify that. He just says, a series of these things. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You've heard it said, when somebody wrongs you, you wrong them right back. But I tell you that if someone has stabbed you in the back, if somebody has lied to you, if someone has stolen something from you, if someone has mistreated you in any way, that what you do is you turn the other cheek. What you do is you give your coat, even though somebody sues you just for your shirt. And you go two miles even if someone only forces you, compels you to go one. And in these moments, Jesus is calling his disciples and these followers of his and us all of these years later into a higher standard of treating those people who mistreat us. And instead of revenge, instead of eye for eye and tooth for tooth, we're to overextend ourselves and serve them. I mean, you talk about provocative, that's provocative. That the people that have hurt us the deepest, Jesus invites us not just to simply forgive them, not just to do the bare minimum, but he invites us to take it a step further and actually serve the people who hurt us. This is not a natural reaction for us. Natural for us is you hurt me, I hurt you at least the same amount, but if I can hurt you more, that's just a bonus on top at the end of the day. If you've done something to offend me, I'm going to offend you even more. Goodness gracious, it's 2021. Like, I feel like the offense meter is always on for everybody looking to be offended and then also probably looking to offend someone else. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And so what Jesus introduces and invites us into is not natural because our gut level reaction is just to seek and exact revenge. Let's be honest. That's why we enjoy music and books, and cinema, and film that is all about revenge stories, right? We enjoy the end of the story when the antagonist finally gets what's coming to them, right? We love it when the vigilante Batman puts the bad guy behind bars, right? 
when Simba throws Scar off the cliff. Like just there's something that felt really good about that moment, right? When that handsome investment banker who finds himself in a quaint little town decides to dump his controlling, mean-spirited, power-suit-wearing girlfriend and falls in love with a girl that's simple yet attractive in the small town in every Hallmark movie ever made in the history of mankind. Simply put, revenge feels good. It feels right. And let's be real honest, it is easy. Revenge is easy. We don't have to try to angle and aim for revenge. It happens without us thinking about it. But according to Jesus's words in Matthew chapter five, we need to pursue exactly the opposite of those feelings if we are to truly be disciples. If we are to truly live in the kingdom of God, we are to pursue the exact opposite of those revengeful feelings. And as Jesus is giving this sermon and as he's expounding upon the thoughts in this, each one of these he would have deep societal implications with it. It was challenging what he was saying to these group of Jews that he was speaking to is saying, you know, when someone sues you for your shirt, give them your, your coat, your cloak as well. If someone should slap you, turn the other cheek. All of those things were had deep societal implications in that culture, in that time. But maybe the one that has the most and that probably took them off, caught them off guard the most, his audience that is, is the one in verse 41 when he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And to us, we have kind of relegated that into this that if you're doing something that you should go the extra mile, you should do a little bit more than what is required of you. It's on your job and you've had a boss look at you and say, hey, I really need you to go the extra mile this month and all of the to make your quota or do whatever it might be. Or maybe you've been encouraged to do that at different places and different times in your life. And that is absolutely a positive thing to work toward. But that was not exactly the intent of Jesus's words, because Jesus knew exactly what he was saying and who he was saying it to. And so I feel like for us to really understand the implications and the invitation of Jesus to his followers and to us today is to really understand the context of who he was speaking to, the climate socially, and what he was really getting at. But you have to understand at this time, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this, this whole entire region had been occupied by Rome. Rome is notorious, if you remember anything about your history classes in high school or in college, they were notoriously um, you know, just barbaric in how they took over territories and countries and lands. And so they just kind of made their way all across Europe and the Middle East and into Asia, just occupying territories with great force, not asking anyone what they thought about it in the process. So for the last hundred years, all these Jews were living in their promised land but they were occupied by an outside country, an outside uh, force, and they were putting their rules on the Jewish population. One of those rules that the Jews in particular hated and took special exception to was there was this rule that said that any Roman soldier, while he's carrying his pack, his supplies, including weapons and whatever he would need to, to function and to be a good soldier in the Roman army, is that any time that any Roman soldier walked up to any Jewish person, he could by law require that Jewish person to stop whatever they were doing and pick up that, that pack for a mile, exactly. 
that was on the books. And so it didn't matter as a Jew, it didn't matter what you were doing. You could have been in your home minding your own business. You could have been out working. You could have been out with friends. You could have been doing anything. And if any Roman soldier would walk up to you and say, I need you to carry my pack for a mile, you didn't ask questions. You just had to do it because you would be severely punished had you not. And so what was commonplace for these, especially young Jewish guys back then in the day who were usually the target of this because they had strong backs and they could carry that pack faster than most others, is that if they would go from their doorstep, they knew exactly where a mile was on all of the main roads. And so what these young Jewish men would do is they would go out with yard markers, essentially mile markers, and they would mark it out exactly one mile from the front door of their home, and they would put that marker in the ground. They would put that stake in the ground so they knew the next time a Roman soldier came knocking on their door, they could carry that pack to that yardstick. And then what was for them in this little bit of rebellion that they could kind of show the Roman soldier what they really felt, they would usually throw the pack over the line, spit in the dirt, turn around, and walk off. It's just this little way of that's the only rebellion that they had. It's the only way they could kind of stand up for themselves in this moment because they hated it so, so much, as you can imagine. Because put yourself in that situation. The very people that are occupying your land, your territory, your country, holding with an iron fist, persecuting you. Those are the same ones that you're carrying their weapons. You are ensuring your own occupation because of the law that they put into place. And so you are essentially aiding and abetting the enemy every time that they ask you to do anything at all. And so they hated this law. And Jesus knew this. He knew the culture. He knew what was happening in these moments. And so Jesus is says when someone forces you to carry something or to walk one mile, instead of just doing that, instead of just getting to the mile marker, dropping the stuff and in rebellion, spitting on the ground, instead of doing that, what you should do is you should go an extra mile, even if they don't ask. Can you imagine how offensive this would have been for the people listening to this in this moment? Can you imagine how much just, I mean, just anger must have been rising up in them. I mean, we are, again, fresh out of 2020, 2021. Like, I don't know where you fall on the whole mask thing. I'm not here to wade into it. I promise you, I'm not that dumb. But um, like, if you're pro or anti, imagine walking into an establishment and either you're offended because they do or you're offended because they don't. That's the kind of offense that we're dealing with now. And we act like that's a big thing. I mean, imagine the offense that they had when Jesus said this. No, 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 you are oppressors. You're not supposed to just do the bare minimum. You're supposed to serve your oppressors is essentially what Jesus is saying. It is, I mean, as, as offensive as he could possibly get. And the implications in our lives are pretty profound. When we think about the words of Jesus and the context in which he said them, to not just forgive someone who wronged us, to not just forgive the person who did that thing or said that thing or stole that thing or whatever, not just to forgive them, but to serve them, to forgive and serve that boss that takes all of the credit for all of your work. Not just to forgive them, but also to serve them, not just to forgive that spouse that ignores your needs consistently, but also to serve that spouse that ignores your needs. Not just forgive that friend who gossiped about you, but to serve them somehow. Not just to forgive that mother-in-law who oversteps her boundaries. Too, too close to home? <laughs> but to serve that mother-in-law that oversteps her boundaries. The words of Jesus start to get very uncomfortable 
and very challenging when we personalize it and look at it that way. There's this quote that I was reminded of that is attributed to Mark Twain that probably wasn't Mark Twain because every quote gets attributed to Mark Twain nowadays, but I love the, the heart behind it. And it says, I have no problem with those parts of the Bible I don't understand. It's those parts of the Bible I do understand that give me fits. We understand this part of the Bible. We might want to ignore it. We might want to pretend like it doesn't exist because it's hard to look past the opportunity to, for revenge and choose forgiveness and service instead. And while this teaching can be really difficult to reconcile, we need to understand that there is power in that second mile. Because in the, in the first mile, I can be right and I can be justified in that first mile. But in the second mile, I have to die to myself. And there's something powerful about dying to myself and my preferences. In, in that first mile, I am a slave. I'm doing what is required of me. In the second mile, I am a servant. I am choosing to do what I am doing. In the first mile, I'm a victim. But in the second mile, I'm walking in victory. The first mile is the law mile. You have to do it. The second mile is the love mile. I'm choosing to do it. You see, bitterness and unforgiveness thrive in that first mile, but blessings abound in the second mile. And here's why. It's because I've stepped past obligation and into submission. You see, that yard marker, that mile marker that was stuck in the ground, the moment I choose to take a step over that and go from obligation, what I have to do, into submission is when everything starts to change in my heart, in my life, in my surroundings. Can you imagine just physically the implications that would have, or the climate culture that would have changed in those moments for that young Jewish man who is carrying that pack that was being looked after by this Roman soldier who was used to what was coming at the mile marker, and they get to the mile marker, and instead of throwing the pack down and spitting on the ground, that young man just kept going and said, come on, I got you for another one. Can you imagine what would have been happening inside the mind and the heart of that Roman guard in that moment? Can you imagine the melting of hatred that would start in that man's heart? Can you imagine what would be happening in the heart of that young Jewish boy? And what God can do in a heart like that. Because here's the reality is that the power of the second mile lies in this, is that the second mile puts us in a posture of submission. The second mile, as soon as you step over from obligation into submission, it puts our hearts into a posture of submission. And this change of posture goes from, I have to do this. This is my obligation to, I choose to serve them. I have to forgive them, but then I choose to serve them. It changes everything about the posture of our hearts. And I'm so grateful that we have a who not just preaches this on the Sermon on the Mount, but almost in this way, as he's preaching, is giving kind of a foreshadowing of what's coming because he's talking about submitting himself, right? He's talking about submission and serving others. And we realize that this is what Jesus's mission was, that he submitted his life even to the cross for you and for me. He didn't stop at obligation. He went all the way into submission to the will of his father. And we know this because in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus exemplified to the greatest degree 
what it means to go the extra mile. Jesus not only told us and taught us how we should treat those who offend us and who wrong us, but then he showed it in the ultimate act of submission by dying on a cross. He went the extra mile for you and me when we could not even come close to deserve that. And I'm so grateful that we serve a Savior who's willing to show us as much or more as he's willing to teach us. And so Jesus calls and invites us from this place, this posture of his own submission into a life of extra mile submission and obedience. And even though Jesus in in this passage of scripture is obviously speaking directly to the way that we treat others that have wronged us, I believe that there is a kingdom principle is a spiritual component, a spiritual principle of what he's teaching that extends beyond just teach or treating someone who has mis- mistreated us. Because when we move from the have to to the get to, our posture of submission starts to change in us, our hearts. You see, we need to move from doing just enough to be a good person. Like, I feel like that's so many times what I am, am kind of like I gravitate toward in my life as being a Christian is I just need to do enough to be a good person. I need to do enough to make my conscience feel good. I need to do enough good things today to sleep at night. I feel like this is a recurring cycle, especially in our society today. I just need to to go to church enough to feel good about myself so that I can feel good enough. I just give enough in the offering to like get, you know, kind of that that feeling of guilt off my back. Or I'm just going to serve enough on that team or in kids church or whatever. I'm going to I'm going to do that enough to make myself feel better and maybe be good enough. We need to get from that place in that that place in our lives to that place where we are submitting ourselves at the feet of Jesus continually day by day. You see the powerful thing about submission, the powerful thing about walking past obligation and into submission. When our hearts turn to that posture of submission at the feet of Jesus, there's something amazing that happens because what we see all throughout scripture is that submission precedes the miraculous. When we submit ourselves to God's will, there are miraculous things that happen after those moments. I mean, if you look all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see it over and over again. Noah's posture of submission in the Old Testament when he's told to build an ark and he'd never seen rain before. He builds an ark and it is that precedes the miracle of his entire family being saved. Moses' posture of submission by being obedient to God and the call that he had in his life to show up in Pharaoh's court and demand, right, that every, uh, or Moses, yeah, that he would let the Israelites go. That obedience, that submission preceded the miracle of the Red Sea parting in two. Joshua's posture of submission by walking around the walls of Jericho seven times preceded the miracle of those walls falling down flat. In the New Testament, we see Jairus show up to Jesus in a frantic state, asking, literally kneeling down in submission in front of Jesus, believing that he could heal his daughter. That preceded the miracle of his very own daughter being raised from the dead. And Jesus himself, his posture of submission on the cross preceded the most amazing miracle of all in the resurrection. But without Jesus's posture of submission to the cross, there is no Easter Sunday. There is no empty tomb. There is no resurrection. It precedes the miraculous in our lives. That posture of submission by going the extra mile in those places where we just want to do the bare minimum, that there is this 
thing that happens in our hearts that make us pliable, make us moldable. And that's where God loves. So that's why this is just the extra mile. It's not just the second mile. It is the miracle mile. Because what we do when we step past that we've put in our lives and say, I'm going to just do the bare minimum in this relationship. I'm just going to do the bare minimum at this job. When we step past that point and into submission, God can use those hearts to do the miraculous in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. I heard a friend of mine tell this story recently, and I thought it was worth sharing here, is that he had a very bad experience, a very bad falling out in a, in a relationship that he had. Um, it was a family member, and I mean, this family member had hurt him deeply, and, and he was struggling with forgiveness. He was struggling with even any of those moments with someone who hurts you. Like, it's not even like, I'm not even struggling. I'm not even close to forgiveness. I'm just trying to be close to not wanting to hurt them. Like, you know, that, that's, that's where he was kind of living for years and years and years. In the meantime, my friend's personal life, professional life was starting to crumble and fall apart of nothing that he knew that he was doing. His, he got laid off from his job like of other, a lot of other people at the time got laid off from their job and his house was going into foreclosure. And I mean, it was just a bad, bad scene. He tells a story the way that every year when this person's birthday would roll around that he was having a hard time forgiving, he would send them a birthday text. But in his own words, he said, I would say happy birthday on the text but I was always hoping it'd be the worst birthday they ever had. You ever send that text before? Like, yeah, happy birthday, but not really. I want you to have the worst birthday ever. And he said in the middle of, of this season in his life, when things were crumbling around him and he was still trying to be faithful, he said he finally got to a place where he got past that marker, past obligation and into submission. And he said he sent this birthday text sitting literally in a supply closet as he was a substitute teacher. He could not find gainful employment consistently, and so he was just working wherever he could, however he could, sitting in a supply closet, praying, and he sent this text because it was the birthday. And he said, I sent the text, and for the first time, I meant it. For the first time, I moved past obligation into submission, and I felt, you know what? I hope that this person who hurt me truly is blessed today. I hope they really do have a happy birthday. And he said, hours later, hours later, he got a phone call with an employer that he didn't even see coming. Nothing was anticipated, but he got a job offer. That's literally that same day. And he's been working in that job for all these years and was able to, to uh, you know, turn around their whole entire financial situation. Now, it's, it's amazing to me the timing of that. I would love to say that that happens every single time that we move from, you know, obligation into submission, like, oh, I got to do this. I got to forgive that person. As soon as like, all right, God, I forgive that person. Like windfall, just all our bills are taken care of. Like it, if it could only be that easy, we, I mean, there, every church in the world would be full every single day, right? We don't see it that way, but God has a tendency to move in our hearts and our lives when we submit to him. And by moving into that second mile, we move into that miracle mile. So where in your life do you feel like you've been settling for just the bare minimum? Where, where do you feel like God's maybe been pulling and tugging? The Holy Spirit has been dealing with you and drawing you into a place that is uncomfortable maybe? And a place that you've just kind of repressed and kind of pushed back and be like, no, 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 that's not it. Maybe it is giving. Maybe there's something financially that God is wanting you to do to support a minister, to support someone who's in ministry, or just to, to, to double down or to give generously, extravagantly. Or, or maybe you're, you're not a, 
a, a, a giver at all and you feel like God's pulling you into that direction, maybe that's where that step needs to take in your life. Maybe it is forgiveness. Maybe there's that person that you just have continually held forgiveness back, hoping to hurt them, but you realize it's hurting you way more. Maybe for you, it's holding back words that you need to speak to the people that you love the most. Or maybe for you, it's not saying all of the words that you say all the time to the people that you love the most. Maybe it's something in your marriage or with your kids or on your job. See, I think it's important at this moment to talk about the fact that when we choose to make this distinction in our life, when we choose to go that second mile, that miracle mile, this is not us convincing God that we're good enough that now you can do a miracle in my life because I've done A, B, C, and D. Because I've said I forgave that person. All right, God, now you can do a miracle. I did all the things that you asked me to. We don't deserve miracles. We don't earn miracles. All this does is put our hearts in a posture to receive what he has for us, those blessings that he has for us. You see, each step past that mile marker in our lives from obligation to submission, it, it kills a little bit more pride. That next step, it kills a little bit more pride after that. And it makes us a little bit more humble and a little bit more humble. And what ends up happening, the further into that miracle mile, the further into that second mile that we go, we stop focusing on our needs, stop focusing on the things that we feel like we want in life, and we start focusing on the needs of others. If you want God to do the miraculous in your life, Submit yourself to him and then focus on someone else's needs. That's where miracles are performed. And so in our lives, we have this option, this opportunity to walk into the second mile, into the miracle mile. And, and who knows on the other side of that for us? Maybe it is a financial blessing for you. Maybe there's marital healing right on the other side of that mile marker that you put in the ground because you said, well, they did this to me and they did that to me and I'm never gonna go extend myself and serve them anymore. And you walk past that and see what God can do in your relationship when you give it to him. Maybe there's somebody in your life that doesn't know Christ and you've been praying and you've been praying and you've been praying. Is there some way that you can go the extra mile and walk past obligation into submission to see what God can perform in their lives through the miraculous? So my challenge to all of us this morning as I close is just to simply allow God to search our hearts. Say, Holy Spirit, where is it in my life I have been just living in, in this mile of obligation. And God, where are you leading me into this, this extra mile, this miracle mile, into submission to the will of the Father? What does that look like? And we play that out. But God, just show me, illuminate that into my heart. My guess is we don't have to pray too hard to see those places where we need to walk that extra mile because we've probably avoided it for a really long time. So this morning, to walk past obligation and indiscipline for everything that happens after that moment. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And God, this morning, we just submit our lives to you. God, those places in our lives where we've been holding back, those places in our lives that we have just felt like we were just getting by, God, those relationships that are tattered and torn, those people that have hurt us legitimately, those people that have done things intentionally to us, God, we choose not just to forgive them this morning, God, we choose to serve them. As difficult and as awkward as those moments are, God, we know that you want to use those moments to work in our lives. So God, this morning in every area of our life, we choose we choose to walk past that first mile.
We choose to walk into that extra mile, the second mile, the miracle mile. And Jesus, we know that when we do, we're just following you there. You've displayed it to us. You've already showed it to us. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd work in those moments of submission, those moments of, of humility, those moments where we rid ourselves of pride and we kill what is there that is hindering us from going forward in our faith with you. And God, we trust you. In these dark times when we don't know exactly what the next step looks like when we walk into submission, God, we trust you because we know that you are there. We know that you are here with us. And God, we're going to be careful to give you the glory. When we see those things happen in our lives, when we see that breakthrough come, when we see those miracles, when we see those blessings, we're going to be careful to push the credit and the honor and the glory and the fame and the praise to you. So God, this morning I pray for everyone who is in this room, everyone that is joining us online. God, as, as I believe you're revealing those things to our hearts even right now, God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit and the boldness to walk out the steps that you have created for us. We submit our hearts to you. We submit our lives to you, God, and we accept and receive your blessings in our lives. It is all good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. So God, we are so grateful. We are so, so grateful. And we love you so much. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus, we want to celebrate with you. To connect with us about what your next step with Jesus might be, or even if you need help figuring that out, you can text the keyword FATHOM to 97000 anytime and follow the prompts. You can also go ahead and type in the search bar of your podcast app, Fathom Beyond Sunday, and there you'll find our new podcast. You'll be able to listen in on some really great conversations, just taking the truth of God's word from our Sunday sermon a step further, talking about how we can apply these truths to our everyday lives between Monday and Saturday, not just on Sunday. We love you, we're praying for you, and we hope you'll tune in again soon.